There you go. You heard that? Yep. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Um, inclusion. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Brad. Cheers. Yeah. In, in, so I, I saw you first uh, on a panel uh, at the South Gloucester Business Show, right? You did. And it was a leadership and diversity panel. Um, and, um, yeah, I got, to, I got to fire a couple of questions at you guys. Um, you did. It was good to have you in the audience. <laughs> And, and I, was, I was very, you know, it was really impressive to me and um, what stood out for me was the way that you had responded to, to the questions and, and absorbed them. Um, and I found that to be in a very good way. And, um, and that sparked uh, an interest for me to reach out to you and then have a further chat. And, yeah, it's, um, and, and it's around the equity, diversity and inclusion work. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm I'm really glad you reached out because I wanted to catch up with you after the conversation. But you 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 were obviously on a mission. You you disappeared off somewhere else, so I didn't get a chance to grab hold of you. But uh, someone else in, on the panel said they already knew you, so uh, we managed to reach out and connect. So uh, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was off to fire questions at somebody else for something. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I do. Um, so, and and you've been very involved in in uh, is it. You know, you're involved in the inclusion side of EDI. Is is more, is that correct in saying that more than anything else, the inclusion, or does it include the equity and the diversity as well? Uh, I'm yeah, I would say I'm very much um, a protagonist for inclusion. It's it, you know, I see myself very much as a tool that businesses, organisations, whatever, can use to help develop their culture, particularly around inclusion and allyship. You know, I've uh, I've only been formally working in that area for this year. I, I left my previous role um, working for a big corporate business at, at the beginning of this year and said, right, I've got this passion. I've got this enthusiasm. I can make a difference to people. So that's that was sort of the the kernel for uh, for setting myself up in business. I'd, I'd spent, like I say, 20-odd years in the corporate world, the last 12 of which I'd been doing an increasing amount of work within the company's employee resource groups and inclusion and diversity councils. And it got to the point where I hated the day job that I was getting paid for. <laughs> but the only thing that kept me going in the morning was going in to do something about inclusion and diversity. And so I just got to the point that no matter that the job was quite well paid, what does that matter if you, you've got no satisfaction, you don't want to be there to do what you're being paid to do. And so I just saw it as an opportunity to uh, to start something and a new chapter so here i am yeah awesome thank you and and it sounds you know it sounds like a like a lot of people's stories these days because working for for organizations and corporates very rarely seems to fulfill a passion right it's a uh, it's you we tend to seem to be cogs in wheels when that's happening so you've got an interesting story i think like like a lot of these sorts of things um you know I find in my life as well, when I'm really passionate about something or when I go to, you know, and I step forward and I advocate for a cause, it's because I have some kind of personal um, attachment to it, for lack yeah. of a better uh, definition, and some kind of personal experience that has kind of filtered me in that direction. Um, and, and you have quite an interesting story of your own. So what is it that, uh, you know, would you share with us? What is it that that, that got you into the, the, the EDI stuff? Yeah, so I... I started my career um, back in 1985, joining the Royal Air Force. It was, you know, it was the only career I'd ever wanted. I wanted to fly. I wanted to be in the RAF. Um, I wanted to be a pilot. It didn't quite work out for me. I ended up being a navigator, but that was the same thing. I was, I was flying. I was in the RAF, and uh, and life was great. I looked like I had this wonderful career ahead of me, but gradually it dawned on me that I was actually gay and obviously back in those days within the armed forces uh, there was still the gay ban in force that didn't get lifted until 2000 so unfortunately in 1994 I was outed um, I lost a wallet that was handed in and uh, after due process I, I was administratively discharged so lost that career you know the only one I'd ever worked for and wanted thrown out because of my sexuality and that really was the that loss that that um 
impact to me was what drove me to work for inclusion and diversity. So initially, I retrained as an accountant. Um, it was a case of I, I came out of the RAF and, uh, oh, what am I qualified to do? And I'm a navigator. And there weren't a lot of navigators in the civilian world in 1995. Um, they were pretty much um, uh, history in, in the civilian environment. And it was a case of, well, what am I qualified to do? Well, I can work with numbers and I can work with people. And um, I did one of these career events thing. And uh, they they processed me and said, oh, you know what? You should either work in IT or finance. And I'm not sure I made the right choice, but hey, I, I made it. And uh, I requalified as an accountant over a, a few years. And uh, the last 20 or so years, I've been working... Um, with a major aerospace company. So actually I did sort of get to feed the passion for aircraft and flying within the, the finance career as well. So I was a uh, an engineering project accountant um, for a fairly major R&D aerospace company. Um, and yeah, that was good because I, I did enjoy that. As, as a finance role, I actually enjoyed it because um, we were talking about aircraft all the time and stuff like that. So it was it was good. But I became more and more involved in the company's efforts for inclusion and diversity councils and ERGs. And, you know, I just I started to lead the local chapters, get involved in the national, get involved in the in the global activities. And that lived experience that I had of being discriminated against, being excluded, being thrown out, having having my life that I had planned ripped away from me because of prejudice and discrimination um, really did fire me to believe that I needed to do something to make workplaces, the workplace where I was at, a better place for other people. So they never had to experience that. And, you know, what, I, what I'm doing today, I believe, is just that natural progression from that. Okay, I was doing that within the workplace where I was employed. Well, now I can go out and hopefully do that in a multitude of workplaces and organizations and, and help lots of those companies and organizations come to the same position where they've got an inclusive environment where people can be their authentic selves. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'd like to go to, to circle back a little bit to, to your, uh, the experience uh, in 1994. Um, are you willing to to talk a little bit more about that, about what that experience was like for you from that perspective and the, yeah. the impact that it had on you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 a long time ago now in a lot of respects, but it's still it it's still quite raw. Um, I I hadn't. I didn't believe I was gay when I joined the RAF. I, I didn't really know what I was. I, I wasn't really focused on that. At, at that point in time, when I joined the RAF, it was, I haven't got time to think about boys, girls or anything. I just need to dedicate myself to the role. And although, you know, in hindsight, there were probably thoughts and feelings that what I know today, I would have said at the point, at the point oh yeah, you were probably gay. But I just didn't want to know it because every, everything about joining the RAF said you cannot be gay. You know, the ban is there. You will be thrown out. You will be humiliated. Back then in 1985, you would have been arrested. You would have been locked up. Um, you know, you would serve time. So it, it just wasn't something I could allow to be me. But after a while, you know, I, I did actually get married. Um you know, there came a point in time where I met a woman and things seemed to work. And so I thought, oh, perhaps that was all just a phase I was going through. And we got married and we did have kids. But it gradually dawned on me that something wasn't right with me um, and the way I felt about my wife. I, I loved her as a person, but gradually I was withdrawing from her physically and emotionally because that wasn't working for me, that side of things. And it must have been horrible for her, just as, you know, it was bad enough for me, but it must have been horrible for her. And, you know, I will be forever racked with that the guilt of what I did to her and my kids, as far as I'm concerned. So 
it came to a point where you know I couldn't deny it any longer. You can't you can't deny your true self forever. It's just not possible. Otherwise, you'll you'll go mad. You'll you'll do something stupid. So I eventually came to the conclusion that I had a number of choices in front of me, none of which were particularly good ones, um, and that I needed to separate from my wife um, for everybody's sake. So we all had a chance to get on and have a relationship that we deserve. So we did separate and, you know, I started to explore being gay. And at the time I was stationed right up in the north of Scotland in Kinloss. So not exactly known for its gay nightlife or anything around there. So, you know, I, if I wanted to explore anything, I had to travel. And, you know, for my own security, that seemed like the sensible thing to do. You know, I would go as far away as possible in the time that I could get off to go and explore what it was like to be gay. And eventually I met someone and, you know, we started a relationship. But I I lost a wallet that had some membership cards in it for um, a gay nightclub back in the days when you actually had a membership card with your signature on it and all that sort of stuff. And, and I lost it and someone found it and handed it in. And... I yeah um yeah it, you know there was there was that humiliating moment where I we were coming back from a training sortie um we landed and I'm just packing up as I usually do and um the squadron wing commander is there to meet the aircraft which is not exactly the usual thing at all and he just walks up to me and says you know leave that come with me and then he marches me off the aircraft past all my friends and my colleagues. And uh, yeah, that was, that made you feel sort of this, this big. And um, he drove me off to the, the police flight and uh, handed me over to the special investigation branch. And then the whole process began of questioning and are you gay? Is this you? And I said, well, it's got my signature on the back of this membership card. So there's a very good chance it is me, isn't it? And uh uh, you know, and who who do you know? Who have you been having sex with? And all very personal questions about what I was getting up to with other service personnel. And you know, I there there weren't there wasn't anything. You know, I I wasn't getting up to anything with a, any other service personnel. I was I was far too naive to identify anybody else within the armed forces who were gay because they were all as secretive as I was. Um, so all of my contacts were outside in the civilian world. And, you know, I got suspended. I was I was quite lucky. I, I was suspended and uh, I got an administrative discharge rather than a, a court martial, which, you know, was still happening at the time. There were still people being locked up at that point. And I fought it as long as I could, but and it took about 13 months for me to actually get discharged from the moment I was marched off the aircraft um and as soon as I did you know I started that fight through courts because it was wrong I I yeah it was it was wrong what they were doing the the whole ban was based on prejudice um there was nothing right about the ban and you know there were various other court cases going through at the time I wasn't the first but I was I think one of the, the second batches. And uh, eventually I got through to the European Court of Human Rights just as they had done. And so, you know, my case they found in my favour because there was no other way to find, you know, the, the ban was wrong. Uh, and so, you know, I was successful. And that happened at round about the same time that actually the ban was lifted for the armed forces themselves. And so, you know, from January 12th, 2000, openly gay lgbt people could serve in the armed forces so it was yeah they got there it was just a bit too late for me mm. yeah thank you man mm. it yeah i mean it, it was probably you know in hindsight it was the root cause of many issues i had i mean it was certainly the root cause of problems that I had with money, um, loss and grief in general, that led me to doing some fairly 
self-destructive behavior along the way um and uh, you know after a few years of good therapy um yeah i've i've managed to come out roughly intact to the other side and hopefully i'm taking those lessons that i've learned and those that lived experience that i have and i'm using that in my teaching and talking to people and businesses and organizations and saying well look you know this wasn't that long ago this was <laughs> this was only 1995 when i got thrown out and only 2000 when the ban was lifted it's not that long ago and you know if if that kind of prejudice can happen to somebody like me why why are you allowing prejudice and discrimination to happen in your organization today is it just you don't understand you don't want to understand you 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 know you don't want to do that you don't understand that there's actually a business case to be inclusive in your organization you know there's there's good reason for your bottom line to be inclusive so it's it's I basically try and use all the messages that I have and my experience to share that message to people and say, well, look, yeah, there's there's lots of reasons for being inclusive, apart from it's the right thing to do. You know, there's legislation you can protect yourself from. But at the end of the day, as a business or as an organization, there's actually financial benefit in in it for you to be an inclusive employer. So it's um, yeah, anything that I can do to help share that message with people is 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 wonderful to me i mean i, I really get off on it <laughs> I, I really get um a buzz from watching a group of people and that penny dropping and and realizing that actually this is a good idea and it's not you know because i'm being forced to do it it is actually a good idea so uh, yeah if i can if i can help organizations come to that point then uh, yeah it's been a success <clears throat> well i think you can well i hope so i mean um yeah well i've only been in business since july um yeah i'll be honest i haven't got a massive number of clients yet but those who i have been dealing with you know they've they've had some they've given me some great feedback they've enjoyed what i've been doing with them they they certainly appreciate that personal message that personal story and that's that's what i find is yeah someone can stand up and give a lecture on unconscious bias or inclusive hiring practices and and that kind of thing but if they're if they're just coming at it from a trainer's perspective going through a, a bunch of slides it lacks that that human empathy that someone who has experienced that situation has experienced um discrimination and prejudice and so on can bring to those discussions and the passion and energy that you can put into those kind of discussions comes from having the lived experience and that's always what i found i mean when i was organizing events at the company that i worked for previously if we could get an outside speaker to come in who had real lived experience those were the events that people really enjoyed you know they got value from you know they heard someone's real story someone's someone's real experience of pain and woe yeah and it's uh, you know it's it's not that i don't think certainly if i look at it from my perspective it's you know because that's how i i relate to people more when i hear things like that because of my own experiences in different things um not the same as yours um but of pain and struggle yeah and and when somebody's you know not being real with me i can pick that up like immediately and i'm not interested anymore so it's, it's not like i want to hear that person's pain and revel in it because i want to know that you know too yeah <laughs> yeah i mean don't get me wrong i know there is a degree of voyeurism in it you know people have that curiosity they want but uh, as you say they can tell when it's a real yeah. story they they can tell when it's this really happened to this person and they they felt this and because of that it helped it helps them understand the message you're trying to get across i find and they go away having learned more and they can relate because they can relate it to a real experience it stays with them longer as well i find yeah and and you know a lot of this work i found with the equity diversity and inclusion stuff and the stuff that i do as well is it, it's absolutely you know that's 
the key. Like there's a lot of words that get thrown around, which is, well, it's one of the keys. A lot of words that get thrown around, oh, it's, it's challenging or it's, com it's complex. And it is complex. Complex just merely means there's multiple levels to it. Yeah. But it, it doesn't have to be difficult. No, and, it doesn't. <laughs> and vulnerability, but the, the difficulty is being vulnerable. Um, and if I can be vulnerable, then I have a gateway. Yeah. You know? It, it, it's about getting people to open up and have conversations that's i mean that's the thing about inclusion and diversity and equity equality and allyship most of it isn't rocket science it's just about getting people to open up and have conversations it's about giving them the kind of environment where they actually feel you know if if they are someone outside of that marginalized community it's giving them the confidence to to stand up and ask the question that they didn't understand, you know, I, I don't understand what transition means in a transgender situation. You know, asking those kind of questions, if once they start having the confidence to ask those kind of questions, providing, providing they're asking them for the right reasons, you know, they are wanting to dispel ignorance, you know, that that's the perfect environment, you know, where, where, where people outside of those communities are asking the questions. And then on the other side of it, you need people within the marginalized groups, whether that's LGBT, whether that's women, people of color, disabled, you need people within those communities who actually have the confidence to stand up and answer the questions yeah. and answer them honestly and, and, and be frank and, you know, at times brutally honest about what it means, because that helps people outside of the community to understand and once they understand and you get start getting rid of all of the myths and the stories you know they become allies and that's what we all need any any marginalized group doesn't really get anywhere until they've got allies with them you know you you look at the women's rights movement black rights gay rights disabled rights none of them really make progress and or not permanent progress until they've got allies you know, you can, you can have a really powerful, engaging, charismatic leader of your your whatever liberation front. But once they're out of the picture, it dies off. You've got that person needs to engage people outside of that community and you've got to build allies. And that's where that's where I put a lot of my focus is that whole building allies and allyship within your organization, getting rid of the myths, getting rid of the um the silly stories that people um, bandy around to to that just betrays their ignorance, really. And once you start people having those conversations, they spread out, and the conversation get wider and wider, and the allyship gets wider and wider, and you get that inclusive environment. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was really into that there for a second. And I, and I was thinking, you know, so so let's just quickly define allyship for those that are listening, because I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that don't know what these terms mean, right? Mm -hmm. So so I understand it as so allyship, and you know, as you've mentioned, it's someone outside of a, a community or a uh, we, is profile. The right word, really. So so if if I'm I, I, if I can't be an ally for a for a white male, so I'm a I'm a heterosexual white male, right? Yeah. So in order for me to be an ally for somebody, it, it needs to be somebody outside of um, how I identify, my identification group. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can be uh, an ally for women. I can be an ally for uh, homosexual men. I can be an ally for uh, men of color, women of color, people of color. I can be an ally for pretty much everybody else except somebody yeah. that looks and identifies as I do. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, you know, an ally can stand up for people within their own community as well. I mean, you you do need those those stronger people who will stand up for the entire community to to make the voice heard for those that don't have the confidence to speak up and don't have the strength of will to speak up. So, you know, allies do exist within their own community. But yeah, usually usually it's that that view is that an ally is someone who is outside of the community with a position of power and privilege given to them by the fact that they are perhaps a white male or something along those lines that that the the marginalized community doesn't have and they use they use their position of privilege and power to amplify the voices of those within the marginalized community 
and make sure that they are heard. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not for well, it is for you as, as an individual to to sort of speak out for a, another gay man. Yeah. Um, um, but the real the sort of real allyship comes in when I, as somebody outside of that identity, yeah. 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 Um, and, and it's really powerful. I mean, you know, allies will stand by your side. You know, if need be, they'll stand in harm's way. You know, a true ally. And and the important thing is at some point we all need allies. You know, there will come a point in our lives where we are in a situation where we need someone else's help, where we need someone's support. And so, you know, we get the chance to pay that forward. So you were there for me when I needed you and I'm going to be there for you when you need me. And it's it, it, it's, it all comes around, karma, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, thank you. And and you, so you but you hold two identities, right? Uh, uh, you hold the the gay man and the the veteran. Yes, like, yeah. that's an that's an identity in uh, the diversity sphere as well. Definitely, and you know, and that and it, that you know is an example of intersectionality, as we call it. And you know, that many of us have that. I mean, we are nobody is a single characteristic. You know, we all hold multiple characteristics. So to a degree, we all have some form of intersectionality. And so because of that, hopefully that means we can have empathy and understanding for other groups. And, um, you know, so, you know, being a veteran for me is very important. Um, I was part of the veterans network um, in the corporate environment where I worked. I still support um, veterans groups. I, I currently engage with the Fighting with Pride charity, which are the, the charity that um, helped bring about the, the current review that's going on for how LGBT veterans were treated. So that that has just finished, just closed its um, call for evidence. So I think, you know, they've had a large number of people deposit their evidence. And although, you know, you've heard my story, in a lot of respects, my story is not as bad as some. I mean, as I said, people were arrested. I've heard stories of people being having electroshock treatment, having chemical, you know, pharmaceutical treatment, um, being jailed. They, you know, they've left with criminal records. They've some of them have been put on sex offenders registers and things like that. You know, it's it's an indelible mark on their character, which is still there for many of those people. So. You know, they lost pensions, they lost friends, they lost all the support networks they were used to, they lost their medals, they lost, most of them lost the very roofs over the head. I mean, I that was it. I was out without a place to, to stay. So, you know, a lot of people over the 30 odd years, so from 1967 through to 2000, when the ban was lifted, you know, something like 5,000 veterans were impacted this by that ban over the over the uh, the all of the armed forces so there's a lot of people and you know a lot of suffering that went on so that review is long overdue but it it, it is happening now and i think you know they, they've still got to come to any conclusions they've got a lot of evidence to go through but hopefully they're going to come up with a plan to give some recompense to those who are still surviving of of that group Hmm. And is that something that's in process, you said? Yeah. So, so as I say, they closed they closed the call for evidence. I think it was the first of December. Uh, so, Lord Etherton and uh, a committee are now sifting their way through those submissions. I think I think they've had about a thousand submissions from people, myself included, and they're going to be going through that, and then they will they will make their recommendations to government as to what what is the appropriate treatment to. Um, to recognise those veterans for the service they gave and the treatment that they were they were given as part of their dismissal from the services. Oh, thank goodness that's over now, right? Yeah, yeah, and and now I mean I'm I'm one of the first people to applaud the armed forces today for being what some of the best employers, certainly for LGBT. Um, in the country you know they're, they're constantly up there in in ranked as employers of choice they're not perfect they still got issues to resolve and we've, we've seen stories of women on submarines and things like that recently so you know th there's definitely issues still to be addressed but they went from um 
you know, from the year 2000 when the ban was lifted, where technically people could have still been arrested and jailed, to being on those lists of employers of choice within about 15 years. And that just shows when you put commitment to it and you put the leadership commitment to it and you have the right education and the right communication, actually you can turn quite ingrained behavior around very, very quickly. And it's about having that focus. Mm. Yeah, and you used the word I was thinking there, which is ingrained, because uh, that was leading into the next thing um, that I was curious about was exactly how much uh, discrimination is still present. You know, I mean, like you say, they are now employers of choice and, and there's a lot of movement they've made towards being uh, open and fair and diverse. Um, and it sounds like perhaps the leadership, you know, have made a change. They've decided to make a change. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, do, do you think perhaps that, you know, because it sounds like that it's, yeah, it's ingrained behavior at, at a kind of employee level, that, that it may be that the leadership is changing the organization, but the people that come in, the employees, for lack of a better, the, the servicemen and women, um, maybe they haven't had the right kind of exposure to the, you know, to either training or uh, awareness projects? Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, the dealings I've had with, with everyday service people have really only been through sort of the, um, the their own pride and LGBT networks um so i i follow them on twitter and places like that um in in my previous role i engaged them to come along and talk to us and you know they, they will admit there is still work to do but from a from a grassroots basis they've got a solid network of people around all the bases and the ships and the stations um and they, they are out and open and you know it is not without issues because you know the armed forces are a mirror of society to a degree because they they are sourced from society so the people who join the armed forces have the same issues of unconscious bias that comes from the environment that they grew up in and you know whatever their parental views were their the schooling where that, that they went to you know if they haven't had the exposure to positive LGBT role models, you know, the, it, the possibility is there that they will still have that ingrained bias, that unconscious bias. You know, most I'm fairly firmly believe, you know, none of them are deliberately intending to be biased. Of course not. That's the whole point of unconscious bias. Or, but, you know, they, they need the right kind of education. I mean, I, I recently wrote to the commandant of um, RAF College Cranwell, part of my own therapy, really. Uh, and I said, look, you know, um, I'd be quite willing to come along and um, give a, my keynote on my story because it is still recent history. And perhaps I can help share some messages that will help your future officers understand better what it was like to have discrimination and what it can be today and what they can do to help uh, i haven't had a response yet so uh, <laughs> well how long ago was that uh it's a few weeks ago now admittedly i couldn't I, I i found an email address off the raf's website but i think it may have just been a shared press office so uh, i i'm uh, one of the things i've got planned to do over the christmas period is actually um write a, a a handwritten letter to the commandant and uh, and send that off to him and make the same same offer it, it would be very therapeutic for me um to to go back to cranwell and stand up in front of a a bunch of junior officers and tell them my story i believe i could make a difference for them as well give them that, that understanding of what it was like and what it can be like if if they take that forward so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they will they will take me up on the offer but we'll see well yeah I'll, uh, I'll you know fingers crossed for you and, and I I encourage you to to write that letter yeah and follow up <clears throat> you know um yeah three weeks is about long enough yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I say, it's probably got lost in some um shared email inbox and <laughs> great. Yeah, go for it. And I think you'll add a lot of value. You know, that's my personal judgment on that. 
Um, so, you know, as a, as a gay man now out in the world in society today, uh, you know, what's your experience like with that and, and prejudice? It, it's still, it's still there in places, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a fairly um, big bloke and capable of looking after myself if need be, but there are still very few places in the country where I would feel totally comfortable um, walking down the high street with hand in hand with my husband. Um, and, you know, even that simple public display of affection, the fact that I feel uncomfortable about doing that pretty much anywhere is, is still quite telling, I think. And, and to a degree, possibly that's a generational thing as well. You know, I, come from that era where um it was still very much a joke you know it was very much a a term of general abuse calling someone queer and all this sort of stuff and so if anybody did show those kind of public displays of affection it was very quickly stamped on and so yeah there's probably a a mental block for me to do it um i'm getting better at it and we do on occasion but it's still not the kind of thing we do younger guys are happier to do it um but even still you've only got to look at the fact you know i think the homophobic attacks have actually doubled in the last four year four years so you know it certainly hasn't gone away um and you know there are some great programs around you've got stuff like heartstopper um sex education with some really great um educational messages that actually these these are just normal kids in amongst other normal kids. And the fact that they think and love differently is irrelevant. And hopefully that's that's educating people. But I find, and I think social media to a degree is 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 there to blame in that it's very polarizing. You don't have a a, a more gentle view and discussion around things you fall on one camp or the other you've only got to look at it in political terms or anything like that you know it's very much i'm i'm over here or i'm over here and there's there is no middle ground and i think social media can be a bit like that and it can be the same for any topic so i think homophobia certainly hasn't gone away um i think schools could do more about it uh, I mean, one of the things I would I think would be great if they did more of people like myself who came in and talked to the students and showed them real life lived examples of being a gay man, being a gay woman, being a transgender person in this day and age and, and let them hear those real stories, because it's when they hear real stories again that they learn. Um, and. And we do need to do more in that respect, I think, and and especially around the transgender issue. Uh, it's it's probably where lesbian and gay men were 20, 25 years ago are where the transgender community are today in terms of getting people to understand what being transgender really means. And for most people, they don't know because they don't know anyone who is transgender. I mean, I, you know, I'm coming at, at this from the conversations I've had with transgender friends and transgender work colleagues. And, you know, I'm the first to admit, I don't understand everything. I don't, I'm not transgender. I can't possibly understand everything they have been through. But what I can do is I can talk to them and try to understand. And so that when I do have those conversations as part of my training, I'm not giving false messages. Um, and, and, and I, yeah, one of my favorite workshops that I do is sex and gender. Because it's one of those ones that's hugely intimidating, depending on the audience, <laughs> because it covers such personal and, uh, and intimate topics. And at the same time, it can drive some of the best discussions, mm -hmm. some really, really intense discussions. And, you know, that's that's what it's all about, as far as I can say, is getting discussions going. Once you get those discussions going, A, they carry on in, in your workshops and, and that helps people. But then they take those discussions outside as well and they carry them on once they're back at their desks and with their colleagues and so on. Mm -hmm. I think the thing with this is, you know, 
UDI is personal. It is intimate. That's the thing. Like I, you know, the stuff I've done with this work as well, it's, it's sometimes it's like in a child stuff, hmm. you know, in therapy, it's like, I have to go back and really heal some stuff. And, you know, in, as well as learning a lot about myself and, you know, having experienced prejudice myself, even, you know, as a white, straight, straight white male, which I didn't realize before, or I hadn't, you know, it was just kind of, uh, you know, get on with it, sort of pack it away. And I had to really uh, to admit that I am homophobic, you know, I'm racist, I'm sexist. Um, you know, I may not be acting overtly in those ways today, and I maybe didn't do it consciously before, but it's like being an alcoholic or an addict. You know, I've been clean for 10 years, but I'll be I'll always be an alcoholic. Right. So it was it was getting getting real with myself in, in that and saying, well, I am homophobic. You know, um, I've behaved in homophobic ways. I am racist. I see difference. You know, I do. And I'm sexist. Um, <laughs> and like you were saying, you know, there's so many things that or I grew up with so many things that were just normal in society, either a joke here or a jive there or something without thinking or knowing or understanding the impact of it on the other side of it. But I think part of it, and, and it's difficult for people to hear. Yeah. In, without, without having done some work, it's difficult for people to hear. What do you mean you're homophobic? What do you mean you're racist? You can't say that. I said, well, I have to say that. You know, if, if I want to be able to make any real change happen, it has to start with myself. And, and I need to be able to admit that to myself to say, well, there's something there that needs working on. And, um, you know, I often find particularly with race and things like that, a lot of people go, uh, they go, well, I don't see any difference. All I see is people. And what I've come to discover from the people that are different to the majority in this country, which is why Tango, Saxon, Protestant, is they go, well, when you tell me that you can't see the difference in me, I automatically don't trust you. Hmm. Because I can see the difference in you. So if you can see the difference in me and I can see the difference in you, then we can start working together. Yeah. And it's, it's admitting that I have prejudices and I have unconscious bias. And sometimes even in my personal relationship, I'll say or do things. I'm like, wow, that was sexist. <laughs> you know, it still comes and up. To me. It, it, you know, I, I occasionally say, th- I, I say things that are wrong. I'm, and when I hear myself say, it's not because I de- deliberately set out to, to say something wrong, but it's, it's from ignorance and it's from that, that upbringing that we've had. I mean, you know where where I grew up, I can't remember any coloured faces until certainly for the first 13, 14 years of my life. You know, my grandfather and so on, they would use various names and so on, and it was it was natural for me because that's what I heard from the people around me, my family and friends. And it was only as you as you learn more and and become more engaged with different people actually let's like say i don't stop seeing the differences that people have inclusion and diversity is actually seeing those differences yeah. and cherishing the value that those differences can add to the variety of your life and your experience mm. um you know there's nothing there's nothing wrong with difference yeah difference is great you know diversity is is great mm. um but like I say to people, diversity, that's just a metric. That's just a measure. You know, we've got X percent women in the com- in the company and Y percent disabled and Z percent people of color. Yeah, okay, that's fine. You can measure it. But with, you know, like any metric, you deliver what you're measuring. Um, and actually what's, what's really important is, well, what's the longevity of that diversity? You know, how, how long do they actually stay with your company? So that's why I always talk about inclusion first, because you've got to get the inclusion right. You've got to make it so that if someone who isn't your common corporate white male clone that's come off the production line, um, if they are not, when they come to that company, they're not instantly ostracized by people in an office who are making misogynist comments, who are making racist, homophobic comments, because... Yeah, because that was the environment they that they developed in their culture within their organization. You've got to make sure that the culture is right so that the inclusion is there, even if at that point in time you don't have diversity. Mm. You know, you've got to have the environment that is inclusive 
that means that people will come along to your company and say, okay, I can't see any other people of color here, but I can tell that I'm going to be welcome. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, okay, you know, I'm the only disabled person in the room, but look, look what they're doing to make sure that I can access the meeting rooms and, and things. So it's, it's making that inclusive environment work. And you have to do that and concentrate on that before you actually start worrying about the diversity you've got. Yes, you you want a you want a baseline to see where you started from, but actually, once you've got a baseline measure, get the culture right, get the inclusion working, and then a year, two years down the line, then take another pulse check on what is your diversity and see if you've moved on. And, and that that to me is more important than oh every every quarter we'll do our diversity report um mm. yeah okay that's that's fine but are are they included um, yeah there's there's a lot of talk in these sort of circles at the moment uh, about lip service in you know two two things like edi and i think there's still there's still quite a lot of that um perhaps a little bit of a controversial uh, sort of question next or topic around edi and stuff like that is like do you subscribe to and um, what's your thoughts on the idea of tokenism you know when it comes to uh, to the edi stuff it it can be as damaging as not having diversity i think you know if you've just um, you know pride is an is a wonderful example of tokenism you know every june pretty much every company now changes their logo with a nice rainbow flag puts a rainbow flag and it 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 can very much smack as tokenism especially when you look at companies who did that for pride month so um i think mcdonald's was an example i probably probably shouldn't mention the company names you edit that bit out nobody's taking any money for endorsements at the moment. <laughs> there are there are there are major international companies who, you know, as part of Pride Month, did all the banners and the posters and rainbows everywhere. It was wonderful. Who then went out to Qatar and supported um, the World Cup. Mm. And, you know, you can see it's really, it's just about the money and the tokenism. And and that can be, uh, you know, tokenism can be as harmful as having no diversity in the first place. Um, because it's quite it becomes across as quite obvious it's false it you know you you haven't genuinely got a diverse workforce you've got a group of white men and look we have a woman or look at the disabled person in the corner doing what yeah we, we, we're an inclusive company no you're not you know you're, you're virtue signaling and and it's it, it that can be harmful just as just as bad as not having anybody in the company Mm, yeah thanks for that is it uh, you know this so we won't mention names then of corporations but some, <laughs> some 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 tv stations or channels or you know whatever broadcasting uh, corporations um you know how do you you know what's your thoughts on because i can look at sometimes i can look at like the tv screen say for instance there's four in a row all on different channels and i can flip through the channels and i can just see you know somebody without an arm and uh, an indian guy an african guy uh, somebody in a wheelchair and and then I start to go well. Actually, where are the people then that now look like me mm. on these things? And and I'm wondering, you know, from an inclusion perspective, do you think some people? I don't know. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think they're going about it the right way? Is there something a little bit kind of off center about the way that that they pretend or, or portray that they are inclusive? Sometimes it does. You know, I I will watch drama shows and you you can almost sit there and say oh look they've got the gay character they've got the disabled character they've got and and it can feel a bit like oh we've put them in for the sake of putting them in the story you know is, is there actually a requirement for that per, that character to be in a wheelchair mm. um but then at the same time i do understand the the need to have visibility and you know the fact that you have put um let's look at silent witness um we had the disabled actress in the wheelchair for quite a number of years uh, of that show 
um, as a forensic scientist. And so, you know, yes, she didn't need to be in a wheelchair for that character's role. But actually, it was great visibility to show, look, someone who is disabled, he'll do this role. So uh, I, I think I think there is a difference between visibility that shows in particular on drama shows and so on can bring to a minority group um, compared to tokenism that say an organization or company can do that okay it's pride month let's trot out the gays and it's so i think that i think there is that difference between visibility and tokenism and while at times it can feel, you know, like every drama show has got that stereotypical batch of groups, I think the visibility that it gives is important and it shows the variety and it shows the diversity that is does exist in our society. Now, I know the counter argument to that is often, well, the, you know, the percentage of um, Muslim people within the UK is, is relatively small um so why have we got so many muslim characters in there that's not representative of the population as a whole and so i can understand that but i i, I guess it becomes difficult when you have got perhaps a small cast you know how how do you make sure you've got the right percentage that ma matches society so i don't so personally i i try to look beyond that as long as as long as it doesn't come across as literally we have put a disabled person in into this role to flag disability, then I think it's it's good to have a disabled person in the role, for instance. You know, it, it, it gives that visibility. But if it if it's if it if then it is just waved as a bit of virtual signaling, bit of tokenism, then that detracts from the drama. What what you want to get to is the point where you don't even really realize that that person is in a wheelchair or that that is a person of color or that person is of Muslim faith or whatever, you know, whilst it might be indicated by something that's going on in the background, you ignore it. And you get to that point where not that you don't see the difference, but that you recognize that the difference has added some variety to the drama. <laughs> yeah, sure. And it's it's a long it's going to be a bit of a longer haul than than you yeah know, it has already been in place and you know coming from south africa um you know i grew up and um yeah well, i grew up the same sort of my listening to my father and his friends from very young say certain things and talk about uh people a certain way and that's you know that did stick with me but but i grew up in in a time where there was you know a lot of people will know about south africa's history and apartheid and all of that sort of thing and I grew up, I was, you know, alive for a very short period of time while that was happening. So, you know, I was too young to know. And then there was the change. Um, and then I, I was, you know, just stuff was normal to me. Um, you know, black people at school, friends, all of that sort of thing. And, and it was black then. It wasn't, you know, paying that much attention to, to gay and, and sexuality and stuff. It was, it was more predominantly a race thing there. And, um, you know, it's started going to such a, a degree that it swung way too far the opposite way, mm. where it's be, being white, male and straight was a crime. Like it felt that way. Um, and, um, you know, they, they implemented a policy called Black Economic Empowerment, which is affirmative action. Yeah. Now, and affirmative action has been implemented in other places in the world. And as far as I understand it as a policy, it has a lifespan of 10 years before it becomes reverse discrimination because um, it's there to to readdress the balance and what they did is they changed just a couple of you know like you know like a recipe they changed a few grains of salt and it's not quite the same thing anymore but it was still the same thing and initially because um, South Africa also had up until recently I think it's Canada now but we had the largest population of Indian people outside of India in the world okay loads of Indians in South Africa uh, and it's part of the culture yeah. uh, you know there was a lot of Chinese people there as well and so governments implemented implement, implemented a policy that said, well, you know, this is how we want to readdress the balance. So as a company, you have to have X and X and X, you know, amount of um, people that aren't white or, or male. 
And uh, initially, women used to make up part of that quota. So did Chinese people, so did Indian people. And then over time, you know, Indian people weren't classified as black anymore. Chinese people weren't classified as black anymore. And women didn't count towards that quota anymore unless they were black. So it, it really just got to a point where uh, you'll see a lot of white people have left South Africa. Um, you could be the most uh, qualified person in a room applying for a job. Uh, and as a white, white person, they wouldn't give you the job. Um, and, and that's just a fact. That's a fact. So I'm not, I'm not making any uh, judgments. I'm not making any false accusations or anything. It is it's literally just a fact. I had a, um, uh, a friend of mine who was, uh, he had a doctorate in business administration, and he was the chairman of one of the uh, sector education training academies in South Africa, in government. And, uh, you know, I was doing a skills development project in broadcasting, working with youths from a disadvantaged background. And I rolled out phase one, and it was successful, and I was hoping to get some funding. So I thought, well, I know this guy, I'll speak to him. Um, and he's an African guy. And he said to me, Brad, um, he said, he, he said you, you, you'll be wasting your time, unfortunately, man. <laughs> he's like, there's no way you'll get, you'll, you'll get the funding for this. Uh, and it's because of the color of your skin as well. Um, so it really started to swing that way. And, yeah. and, I, and, and rightly so, well, I say rightly so, but you know, there was a lot of anger in the country, as much as there is for things like the Holocaust and so on. It's generational, you know, I mean... And it's, and it's reactionary as well, isn't it? It's you know, it's you've had so many years of treatment one way, mm-hmm. and suddenly the 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 tables the roles have reversed, yeah. and, and so I, I think it is very much human nature that says, right, we're gonna we're gonna address this imbalance, and we're gonna make sure that you know this is an African country, you know, um, the vast majority of the population are Black African. They sh- that should be reflected in all of the roles, and yeah. and and you can understand that, but yeah. but it's I mean it's, it's like I say, uh, um, you, you don't. Yes, you want a good representation of your society and your culture. Yes, you want good diversity, but you don't want it at the cost of performance, especially when you're talking about a business or an organization. Yeah, you know, I, I would say. You you still want the best, most qualified person for the role because at the end of the day, you want to be the best company. You want to have the best bottom line, the best return on investment that you can have. You do that by having the best person in role. If that means then that you choose what person A over person B and they're not the, um, they don't, improve your diversity metric well what you need to look at is where you're going to in the first place to to potentially find your candidates for your roles you know look at look at the hiring process look at the advertising process making make sure that you cast your net as wide as possible at that stage get a a a candidate flow through the funnel that is as diverse as possible and you know as devoid of bias as possible and then rely on the fact that you are going to interview in to such an extent with the the you know the thing in mind that you are going to hire the best person from that short list of candidates mm-hmm. and and as long as you can trust that the the advertising and the and the shortlisting process is is good you will end up with diversity. Mm. Sounds uh, ideal. And, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. I, I have quite a utopian view of the world at yeah. times. <laughs> well, it, it does sound ideal. And, and you know, and, and I think it, it is the way that it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my fear is, is that in this country, it will go the same way. But the part of one thing that w- w- won't let it is the fact that it is a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon country like this one. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I don't think it's fair on people who are minorities or of certain identification groups that they get chosen because that just smacks then of tokenism as well. Um, and it really isn't fair all across the board. So it, equity, diversity, and inclusion is for everyone. Yeah. And that, sounds, that sounds like a commercial, right? As I said that, I realized <laughs> that, that, sounded like, <laughs> that sounded like a commercial. 
But I think it's really important for people to understand, particularly in the majority, because um, there is still a lot of fear because it is ignorance, as you said earlier, and ignorance in its purest form that we just don't know. Yeah. I used to find myself getting really angry about all of this stuff. And then in this country, listening to a lot of people talk about it, and I had my experiences. And I thought, you know what? That's it. I'm angry, but I'm going to educate myself. Yeah. And, and let's get stuck in. Let me become uncomfortable first. Um, and, and it's not an easy thing to do, but um, yeah, it's it's the way forward. Um, yeah, if you, I mean, if you if you can, you know, as part of a workshop, if you can make people uncomfortable for a while during that workshop, then actually you, you're doing well. You know, you you want them to start questioning what they've always assumed was the right way of behaving or the the right, um, you know, the right belief of what sexuality means and so on. And once they start questioning that's when they're open to progress. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, it's, and it's understanding all of these things as well, because hey, there are lots of things, lots of words. And as you said it last time we spoke, there's lots of acronyms, yeah. lots of letters, and there's, there's all sorts of things. But like anything else, like any other field of study, you know, once you understand it, um, then it's, it's easier to navigate. Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing is, don't be afraid of getting it wrong. I mean, I still get it wrong. Yeah, I, and, you know, as long as as long as you're not deliberately setting out to be wrong and, you know, when you are pulled up on it by someone, you actually take that as a constructive criticism and learn and do things differently. People make mistakes. We're, we're human. We're, you know, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I used to, you know, uh, with, you know, gay people in the past when I was a lot younger, you know, just be talking, say, for instance, in a pub and then uh, call them bro or something, you know, and I'd be, oh, shit, is that OK? Can I call you bro? And they'd say to me, Brad, <laughs> if that's what you would say anyway, then just say it. Yeah. Yeah, just say that. Just, just say called, that. I've been called a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, and it's like saying black, you know, black, 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 black. You know, people are black. There are black people who are black and they're proud of that. And I'm proud of them as well. And I'm proud that they are. And I'm proud that I'm white. Um, you know, and, and, and that's something that, uh, that I had to come to and learn as well. And, and with the group that I work with at the National Coalition Building Institutes, more specifically, and the Mankind Project is really, you know, every, there's everything right with me as well. Yeah. And just for somebody else to be empowered doesn't mean that I have to be disempowered. Exactly. And that's that's the thing that people, I think, often get wrong about equality. Equality is not about you losing your position or your power or your rights or whatever. It's make, making sure that other people are brought to that same level as yourself. It, you know, and that I think a lot of people think equality is about taking things from them, but it's not. It's making sure that everybody else has access to the same opportunities that you have. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something quickly because we'll wrap it up in a second, if that's yeah. right. Um, I wanted something when you were talking earlier and you were telling your story, something that stuck out for me was when you were explaining about your wife uh, or the woman you had children with and your children, you know, and, and you said that it felt like something, you, you realized something was wrong with you or not right. I can't remember your exact words. Um, this is not a challenge. Um, I, and, and this is more probably just an offer for a, for a change of perception, um, you know, and it may have been the context that you were speaking it, about it in, but um, do you still feel, do you still believe that there's something not right about you? Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm totally happy in myself now. Yeah, yeah. And the, the relationship I have now, you know, this is, this is where I, I'm, I'm happy. I, I have a good, healthy relationship. Um, I was talking about the situation where I, I, I realized that me being in a heterosexual relationship wasn't right at the time. Wasn't right. It, okay. it wasn't right for me. You know, I wasn't giving what my wife needed from a relationship. I wasn't getting what I needed from a relationship. So we were either destined to be unhappy, never being fulfilled as a as a partnership, um, because you know we weren't getting what you know people needed from each other in a relationship mm. or i mean the other option and many people did it i i could have been dishonest and i could have pretended uh, and stayed married and i could have gone and had affairs and put her at risk put the kids at risk and all that kind of stuff 
and it happens and it still happens today of course it does mm. or there was that short-term pain and i say short-term and i'm and i know the pain hasn't gone away in some respects you know but i still think it was it was the best of a bad lot of decisions you know my wife had the opportunity to go away and find herself a relationship that she deserved she was getting the 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 kind of partnership that she wanted and deserved and i could go away and do the same um, the best, best that you both could hope yeah, for. Yeah, it was the best that I could do in the situation that I found myself in, and uh, yeah, that I very much am still. You know, I and part of the therapy that I've had. You know, I've talked about it a lot with the with the therapies is the guilt that I I st I will carry it forever. I will I will always feel guilty for having put her in that position. I will feel guilty for having left my kids at a very early age. Um, I can't say it was wrong to have gone down that path of being married and having kids because my two daughters are beautiful, intelligent, um, capable young women um, forging great lives for themselves. And obviously, if I hadn't got married, they wouldn't be there. So, you know, something good has resulted from it. And I, you know, I wish I, in a lot of ways, I could have been more of a part of it, but so this is the the sort of the coach and the therapist part of me now, right? Is and feel free to tell me to shut up. But <laughs> it's the guilt. The word when you say I still feel guilty because for me I get it. I you know there's things I feel guilty about in my past and I have. Um, I believe I've worked through a lot of it. Guilt is living in the past though, yeah. and in in EDI circles, uh, you know, guilt is the glue that holds things like prejudice in place, right? So if I feel guilty, I'm not functional. And I wonder, is it true that you you feel guilty? Did you know? Was it something that you did on purpose? And 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 if, I don't think you did. And it sounds like you have great relationships with him, and you've done what you could. So I'm wondering if that's something you could put down is the idea of guilt. Uh, and and it, and yeah, again, that's that's something I've discussed with the, the therapist. And like like you say, none of what I did was intentional. Yeah, you know, I didn't set out to hurt my wife. Um, to leave my kids or anything like that that was definitely not something i ever set out to do um and i still believe i made the best choice out of a set of impossible choices um but i i, I come from a family of born warriors my mum my gran you know they just worry about everything and basically that's me i just worry about everything i'm a i'm a um a serial warrior <laughs> and, and and it is more it's more i think it's probably more that than guilt you know like you say i you, i did nothing wrong um so therefore i've got nothing to feel guilty about but i regret the situation it's put others in it's probably a better way of putting it and it seems like they've come out okay yeah and and just just to add another cherry on that i mean I think the divorce rates up at like 50 or 60 percent right now in the uk anyway I mean, you know, there's 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 fathers, heterosexual fathers, leaving their their yeah. you know wives and children all the time. Prejudice is Albert Einstein, right? He said that it's easier to crack uh, an atom than it is to crack prejudice, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're on it. So thanks, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and having this chat with you, man. It's uh, it's been awesome. It's been uh, very enlightening, um, and very very interesting and informing. Uh, it's been brilliant, Brad. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for, uh, again, thanks for the invite and uh, for the conversation.